Welcome to the Graphic Audio Behind the Mic podcast. These podcasts will feature author interviews and behind-the-scenes interviews with our cast, directors, and crew. Today's podcast features director Scott McCormick's interview with author G.S. Denning. In this conversation, Scott, who is joined by his wife, Jillian Levine Sisson, talks to G.S. about his fascinating take on the world of Sherlock Holmes through the creation of the Warlock Holmes series, a mystery fantasy series that we now produce in graphic audio. On your feet, Watson. The game is afoot in the wolf at our door. Welcome to Graphic Audio's Behind the Mic. I'm Scott McCormick. Yeah, that's my DJ voice. And we are here this week with Jillian Levine Sisson, who happens to be my wife. Hello. And an adapter for Graphic Audio. And we are very lucky to be joined by Mr. G.S. Denning, Gabe, Gabriel, who has written what I demanded to direct, which is our newest mystery series, Warlock Holmes, and the first of that series, A Study in Brimstone, will be out as soon as this podcast is out. So welcome to our podcast, Gabe. How are you doing? I'm so happy to be on your podcast, you guys. I'm so happy that you're, that you're working with Holmes. You know, I'm a theater dork like you guys, and, I, and I've been long waiting to see what you guys would do with my jokes. Like, I've never had to, like, write jokes, send them off, and see what other people do with them before. It's, it's you know, nervous sighting. Well, you wrote some great jokes. I got the ad for your book, and I immediately went to my bosses, and I said, we need this book. And they said, we already have this book. <laughs> and then I said, I need to direct this book. Both me and Jillian are huge Sherlock fans from the word go. And then just on top of that, as soon as I saw this coming across the plate, I was like, this is going to be a lot of fun. And then I read it, and I got even more excited. So you're our kind of geek, as they say in the biz. So <laughs> Yeah, I, that's my favorite thing about the geek world is, is, yeah, everyone's your friend. There's so much that you can, yeah, you can find in common with people on yeah, I've been I've been waiting. I've been waiting. Come on, get this recording out. I want to hear all of it. <laughs> well, Jillian has some questions. We're going to start off with some Sherlock questions, and then we're going to move on to some questions about you. So go ahead. Sure. Scott was originally supposed to adapt this book, and after weeks of begging, he finally turned it over to me to adapt. So I'm grateful that he gave me the opportunity to do that. You know, there are so many takes now on Sherlock Holmes, ways that people have taken these stories and, you know, reimagined them. And I found it really fascinating that you took this character and instead of him having an extraordinary mind, you gave him an extraordinary power and you introduced magic into his into his story and as an explanation for how he uses his powers of deduction. So I was wondering what was it that inspired you to take a magical take on Holmes? Uh, it's <laughs> very strange. So I was actually in a writing class at UNLV and one of the girls there had written a Mary Sue character character who's like the smartest and the best and just does everything right and is really alienating. And I was watching BBC Holmes at the time, Sherlock, sorry. And so I encouraged her, you know, when people were sort of down on her book a little to, to try a Holmes approach where, you know, she gave him superpowers, but also just flaws. Holmes is best. I always felt when he needed Watson to tell him, Hey, you need pants on if you're going to leave the flat. And she just scoffed at the idea. She said that was stupid because she was writing fantasy and Holmes never worked in fantasy. And how would you even do that? And on the way home, I just started laughing because I realized everyone thought he was magic. 
All you have to do is just let him be magic. Yeah, and you know, I and here's my shame on you humanity moment. I thought of the pun, Warlock Holmes, before I was even home, like pulling into the driveway, giggling, ran upstairs to Google it because I figured there's got to be like, you know, 70 years of awesome Warlock Holmes stuff out there that I've been missing. And there was like nothing. Nobody done it. So I I actually have this weird moment of disappointment piecing around in my in my office followed by well fine fine no one else has written it i'm gonna write it i'm <laughs> i'm gonna do it excellent and, uh, and yeah that's really how it started off and then i uh, i wasn't even through the first story which was study in brimstone and i decided to start with the uh, the origin story when i just realized what a great and easy break-in for a new writer that was uh holmes is the second most profitable public domain character after Santa. So yeah, when you walk up to a publisher and say, hey, I'm a new author, take a chance on me, they're scared. But when you say, hey, I'm a new author, take a chance on me, by the way, newly marketable version of Holmes, who the world just can't get enough of, well, you're not so scary. Just to give a brief overview, Warlock Holmes is like Sherlock Holmes, only he relies on magic instead of deduction in order to solve his mysteries. He has his faithful friend, Dr. John Watson, who comes to live with him. And they, uh, you have done a wonderful job of having your stories shadow the original canon of stories. I mean, you mentioned Study in Brimstone, which I got to give you credit. I mean, right down to the, <laughs> I love how you frame it, the rather disturbing and strangely off-putting third-person narrative that comes right out of nowhere in the middle of you go, why the hell have we switched from first-person narrator to a third-person narrator in the middle of the story? And I can't wait for you to experience how we do that. For uh, fans of graphic audio, we have a special guest narrator. (laughs) We have a special guest narrator. Mort Shelby will be doing a special Western portion of the particular story. And for graphic audio fans, Mort is a legend, so that'll be great. And then after studying Brimstone, you then move on to, I don't want to say parody because they're not parodies. They're actually fully formed new stories that use the original mysteries as sort of a jumping off point. But then they have their own conclusions that are all magical based and that they all hang together. And yes, some of them are full creations out of your mind, but at the same time, reference everything from the Stepford Wives to their their elements of every iteration of Sherlock that we've seen, from the Jeremy Brett, Robert Downey Jr. to the Moffat Gatiss versions of it. And for people who are fans of all the versions of Sherlock, there's a lot to love, but for people who just know that Sherlock Holmes is something that exists in the world, it's funny as hell. And just being funny <laughs> as hell is something which, which is, is worth having in this life. So, um, what would would you call them, Gabe, if they're not parodies? Because I think Scott's right, that's not the right word. You know, what would you call them? Homages, in a way? Yeah, I think that's probably the best. Uh, and Scott, Scott really sort of put his finger on it, too. I try to throw in an homage to almost every version of Holmes that I can find. You know, like what makes them good, what makes them singular, because you know, like you said, so many different versions of this character. And, yeah, I always like to do a little nod here, nod there. You're the first one to find the Stepford Wives sort of feel. And, and in the same story that you're talking about, there's Terminator and Blade, Refer- and Blade Runner throw-ins. Yeah, and I, I think it's just because, I mean, I'm a, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool geek. I, I taught myself to read when I was seven so I could play D&D. And, you know, just having grown up so steep in that, it has been 
wonderful being able to be a content generator and just sort of like throw out little nods and jokes to the things that I've, I've loved for so many years. When Jillian and I were on our honeymoon, I'd never been anywhere. I was I was completely contained within the state of Maryland. No, I'd been places, but I'd never been to Europe. And the first thing I wanted to do, we went we went to Ireland, then we went to Scotland, and we were in Edinburgh, and we were taking the train from Edinburgh to London. And all I wanted to do was read Sherlock Holmes on the train from Edinburgh to London. <laughs> and while, Which he did. And while we were in the Highlands, I found myself my own deerstalker. And... The reason that's a miracle is because you can't tell from my voice, but I have a very large head. <laughs> and to find a hat that would fit my head and to find a deer stalker was quite a feat. And it, it kind of defines our relationship. Now, <laughs> your character of Warlock does not have a deer stalker. He has a soul stalker. Is that correct? How is a soul is stalker, How is a soul stalker different than a, a deer stalker? Mm, spoiler alert, in, in book two, two goat horns grow through his soul stalker. Other than that, I have not defined it. Uh, but you know something, though? You and I have had the same problem. I needed to find a hugely oversized deer stalker so that I could make the Warlock Holmes selfie hat, which, <laughs> uh, as I've sort of already spoilered, was created using um, a lot of epoxy on my part. Uh, that one huge deer stalker that I found, and, and two... <laughs> laminated goat horns that I bought off eBay because you can buy anything off eBay. <laughs> We've been Amazing. stalking you on Facebook. We saw all the pictures. Yeah, it's, it's been really fun. <laughs> so yeah, catch catch me at a signing Uricon or anything you want and you can you can selfie in the Warlock Home selfie hat. He was an excessively tall man, easily the better of six feet. His face was hawkish and thin. He stood in his shirt sleeves, his long jacket discarded across a nearby chair. His sleeves rolled to his elbows to keep them from interfering with his current study. His striking green eyes were wide with the physical effort he was engaged in, which dewed him brow and arm with sweat. <laughs> On the table before him lay the corpse of a gentleman who must have perished in the last week or so. He already displayed the bloating and discoloration that comes as decomposition sets in. The hospital winding sheet on which he lay was splattered and stained with almost every bodily fluid one could name. Some of it may have leached out naturally, but you didn't have to be a doctor to see that there was a more immediate cause for the majority of it. Holmes was repeatedly striking the corpse across its chest and face with a dented cricket bat. Stay down! Stay down! Stay! Down! My God, whatever are you doing, man? Holmes froze for a moment mid-swing, his guilty eyes locked with mine, and his mouth began to move as if to formulate a response. Um, I... well, uh... <laughs> Holmes is a scientist, of sorts, greatly interested in forensic studies. Uh, doubtless he is conducting some experiment or other to, um... Ah, to determine whether and to what extent bruising can be caused post-mortem. Isn't that right, Holmes? Holmes stood frozen a moment more. Cricket bat raised. A look of consternation crossed his features. What are you talking about, Stanford? What was all that? The perfectly reasonable scientific explanation for your extraordinary behavior, Holmes. Oh, yes. So it was. Yes. Thank you, Stanford. 
Holmes began to look about the room, searching, I suppose, for somewhere he could lay a battered, bloody cricket bat where it wouldn't look out of place. Finding none, he lowered it to the floor and slid it under the autopsy table with one foot, as casually as he could manage. Once this was accomplished, he gave me a half-convincing smile of welcome. You see? There. It's gone. Now, um, who is this, Stanford? Ah, this is Dr. John Watson. He has given me to understand he has an immediate need for shared lodgings. At this, Holmes's bright green eyes flashed up at me for a moment. I had the sensation of being held in place by a giant but invisible hand. When I next exhaled, it seemed to me as if it contained not only discarded air, but the complete truth of my person and position as well. Dr. John Watson, late of the British Army, having been wounded in the left shoulder in Afghanistan, currently residing at the Hotel de Amsterdam on the Strand. I stood aghast. After a moment, I breathed. By God, by God, how did you do that, man? Why, it's almost supernatural. What? No. Supernatural? No, 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 no. Uh, no, it isn't. Uh, Holmes is particularly observant. With the merest glance, he can glean facts that elucidate a man's entire history. Uh, though it may seem supernatural, it is an entirely explainable phenomenon. Isn't that right, Holmes? Oh, yes. Of course, that's it. Why, I merely observed, my dear Watson. I merely observed. Your left arm hangs limp, but not stiff, indicating a wound but not to the arm itself. The shoulder, then. You have a sad expression, so of course you must have been to Afghanistan. Any doctor recently wounded and recently in Afghanistan is bound to have been attached to the British Army. As to the Hotel d'Amsterdam, well, ah, observe the red mud caking your left shoe, sir. It is of a very specific type, unique in London to one particular puddle just outside the Hotel d'Amsterdam on the Strand. He gazed at me with an expression of triumph and relief. My eyes wandered to my left shoe. It was indeed caked with mud, but not of a reddish hue, and definitely not from my hotel. In fact, it was from a wet patch that Stamford had dragged me through just outside the hospital. It occurred to me that a truly observant man might have realized that it was still wet. As it was not a rainy day, this small quantity of mud would surely have dried on the journey from the Strand. Nevertheless, he had guessed exactly, and I had no means to refute him. So, what was it like hearing Warlock and John talking to each other for the first time out loud, except inside your own head? Uh, right. <laughs> so good. So, oh, this whole thing has been so refreshing to get them out of my head and into other people's. And, yeah, like, this is, this is just all I wanted. By the way, had to yes. say, uh, other job, I'm an MRI technologist. So I can say with some authority that what more medical settings need is whimsical accordion music. <laughs> I, uh, I particularly like that. Excellent. <laughs> I think if I had a guy in a stripy shirt and a beret with like a cigarette hanging out of the corner of his mouth, sort of like honking along, it'd be way easier for me to tell people, yeah, that's, that's totally well, cancer. I was very excited to have accordion cues in this book. Having, <laughs> okay. having Warlock... Same as, as Sherlock, but different. Warlock plays the accordion, which, as we all know, is the devil's instrument instead of the violin. Oh, yeah. It gave us the opportunity, so we had one of our 
in-house composers do some adaptations of some fairly popular classical tunes, so you will get to hear those, including a popular New Year's tune, which figures prominently oh. into the opening of one of the tunes, including a minor variation which sounds extremely evil, which I'm particularly proud of that, that I requested. So that's something to look forward to. Oh, um, guys, get this book out right now. <laughs> it, it is close. We only have, what, today's the 5th? It'll be the 12th, so it'll be there, and we can get you a copy as soon as that's done. I'm listening. It's going to be end up being seven discs. I'm listening to side four right now, and the rest of them will be done by the end of the week. And i got to be honest, I'm laughing out loud, and that's not something we do here, especially considering by the time it gets to this point, I've heard every joke at least three times because I'm sitting in the studio either recording it or the with the actors. This is the kind of thing that bears repeated listening, which for our listeners, everybody knows the more times you can listen to it, the bigger your value. So please. And you get something. <laughs> Jillian, you, I mean, you had to work on the script. I mean, you know this. You get something new out of it every time. Jillian listened to the first side of it today. Yeah, I was listening to the first side this morning, and, you know, I adapted it for graphic audio, so I had to comb over it. I had to edit things, turn it into an actual script as opposed to just narrative literature. I had to cut certain things that didn't work for audio and sort of mess around with it a little bit. And when you do that, you don't necessarily pick up on the teeny tiny nuances in the same way. And I found myself just absolutely laughing hysterically <laughs> listening to the first side of it in ways that I hadn't when I was adapting it because you're so involved in the work. But then you step back and you listen and you think, oh my gosh, just really funny stuff. And not just funny stuff, but sincere stuff. Something I was saying to Scott is I think the key to the Holmes and Watson relationship is there has to be some very real and genuine friendship and intimacy between them in order for it to work and in order for you as the person reading it to, or listening to it to have buy-in. Um, so I think you actually captured the the joy of their friendship as well. So I thought that was really great. And yeah, it was really fantastic. Thanks. That's actually been one of the funnest parts about this whole thing is dealing with something that's just so outré, you know, and so weird and so notably tongue-in-cheek. But trying to, trying to keep the idea of like, no, if you were actually living that life, you know, how would it feel? What would you do? And uh, yeah, I mean, I know you guys are on book one. I'm, I'm on book three. And, right. and, you know, by this time, it's starting to become really, really clear hmm. why and how much Holmes needs Watson. Yeah. Well, I dipped it. I'm already into book two. I've started reading book two because we're actually going to go. I know we had to wait a year for book one to come out, but book two is going to come hot on the heels. So I'm very excited. I started reading that. Now I'm up to fourth story. I'm going to be honest. Silver Blaze right now has disturbed me in a way I never thought Silver Blaze would disturb me. <laughs> what? It's just casual bestiality. That's fine. I got no problem with that. And I got no problem with cross-dressing. It's the fact that I got to figure out how to make all the dead horses appear in a London flat. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, that will be fun. That's delightful. I'm already imagining yeah. what it sounds like when a coffee table breaks under the weight of a dead horse. Oh, I was just going to say these are the challenges that I miss in live theater. <laughs> <laughs> Jillian had a question. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, I noticed that you are also a playwright and you come from a theatrical background. So why do Sherlock as, or Warlock rather, as a novel as opposed to a play? 
think the ultimate answer for that is I had kids panicked because I realized I would not be able to feed them. Moved from Seattle down to Las Vegas where I could live really cheap while I got through school to be an MRI technologist. And in the process, I, you know, I lost all my friends. I lost all my theaters. But like many improvisers who have for you know some number of decades been chiding themselves, why do I let all my work just drift off into the ether every night? I should write some of this down. I just decided to see if I could write some of it down. And uh, it turns out if you've done improv, it, it's a hop and a skip. It's really not a difficult transition. Uh, the only hard part is learning to edit because on stage, we never get to do that. It comes out of your mouth and tough. That's all you ever get to say on the matter. And with a book, just the opposite. It comes out of your mouth and, well, get ready to live with it for a number of years as you slowly, slowly beat it into something with a useful shape, you know. I don't know. I really, I really miss the theater. But on the, on the other hand, I'm very happy with my replacement for it. <laughs> How did you choose the stories that you chose? I mean, obviously, studying Brimstone being the first one, but then you sort of hopscotched your way through the rest of the canon. What what drew you to those other stories? So a funny combination. The the second story that I ever started working on was Hellhound of the Baskervilles because duh, Hellhound. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, yep. it's an original home story with a Hellhound in it. I've been telling people that the actual subtitle is That Damn Dog, but that was something I created in my head. Go on. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, wait, wait till you hear it. I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, looking forward to it. Right now I'm on the tricycle races. Oh, so, the tricycle. Go. You know what? So book two, so all you all you already Warlock fans, there's um, both of you listening. Um, <laughs> you got, uh, uh, book one, I, I had no idea how much people would like Grogson and Lestrade. I only oh, used them yeah. because they're in the original stories. Hmm. Uh, but people really latched on to them. And so when I was doing book two, I realized, oh, no, I don't have these guys. I, so I actually lifted out a completed story, just chucked it, and, uh, and threw in The Adventure of the Solitary Tricyclist just so we could get some Grogson action in book two because I knew people would be, would they be mad if I didn't. So I love Grogson. He broke my heart, <laughs> really. So lovely. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, Grogson's been been kind of fun to write. Uh, in a way, he's my most stereotypical character. Big guy, say something dumb, smash something. He's, <laughs> he's the Victorian Hulk, you know? Sure. We have the actor who plays our Hulk playing Grogson. We do Marvel comic books. Bradley Smith, who plays the Hulk for us, is playing Grogson. Yeah, probably quite a stretch, I would imagine, eh? He's a very, <laughs> he's very Bruce Banner gentleman. That's why it works. So, go on. Things about Grogson is... You know, when you talk about the isolation of living in a culture that has such firm social rules and a, and a person who will never fit in, one of the latest throw-ins in the book, like on the last adaptation, when I knew I needed something for him, he's got this fondness for ballet. And he had the place where Grogson broke my heart as I wrote this line about ballet dancers being beautiful, graceful, delicate, refined, and that to make the list complete, all you'd have to do is add well-spoken and preferable with here's five things grogson will never be oh. yeah he's uh. a lonely monster you also have the vampire lestrade in your your book and one of my favorite just poignant moments is watson's down on himself and he talks about i'm only a man and that's the moment where grogson and lestrade take up arms and just say 
how dare you? You talk about only being a man. Look out there. There are 7 billion of you, basically. We're stronger than you and all that, but you all have basically eradicated all of us. So don't ever say that just being a man is, is something that's... When people get to that scene, it's just you oh, yeah. so well written. So yeah, them saying what we would give to be you, what we would give to pass and be in your world and not be seen as monsters. It was actually a really beautiful moment in the book. You know what it is? It's because mm. uh, I'm going to date myself. I remember when Star Wars came out. Mm. I mean that very first one. I was three at the 1978 re-release. And um, I grew up when there were not a lot of geeks. We didn't have Avengers. We didn't have comic book movies on yep. television. We didn't. We were the wheezy kids in the back. No one wanted to talk to unless they wanted to shake us down for lunch money. So a lot of the subtext in Holmes, you know, living as a monster amongst people who will judge you, is very much just my love note to the geeks saying, look, I know it's yeah. hard. You're different, but you're wonderful. Let's be geeky. Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit older than you, Gabe. Don't worry. Just <laughs> a little, much. just mm-hmm. just about a year. I was I was four when it was actually released in '77. So it's the transition between when geek culture became pop culture. What we all started to realize is that everybody is a geek about something. And we, Jillian and I are firm believers that, that everybody is a geek about something. You can be a geek about sports. You can be a geek about about fashion. You can be a geek about music, the cool things. And nobody ever called those things being a geek because, quote unquote, they were cool. But the truth is, everybody has that part of their brain that they've given over to something that no, there's no reason to dedicate that much space in your brain to, except for the fact that it brings you pleasure. The reason I can remember every episode title of the Star Trek series is because I can't tell you who was, you know, in the in the you know, nineteen seventy three lineup of the Orioles because I didn't give my brain to that. I gave my brain to knowing the world is hollow and the sky is full of stars. That's what I gave my brain over to. I gave my brain over to knowing being that lonely kid talking about him, reading Sherlock Holmes. And it seems like you did the same thing. And Sherlock Holmes was a friend. And Watson is a friend. And it's those relationships. I don't know how, how you felt when, when Leonard Nimoy died. But in our uh, house, it was basically a national day of mourning. And I, I still can't watch Star Trek without tearing up a little bit. But the, I have the, another book that will never be published. But Leonard Nimoy is the narrator of that book. Like, he never, he never knew it. But in my mind, whenever it was a pirate story, a bunch of kids oh, wow. who run off to become pirates, and they have a writer that they have tied up on a raft that they tow behind the ship. And, uh, and he's the narrator of the story. And in my mind, it was always sad Leonard Nimoy tied to a chair. Oh. You, know? you know, telling oh, you the story wow. of these pirate kids. And, mm-hmm. I, and I broke a little the day I realized that would never come to pass. He was oh, gone. Oh, wow. And that's exactly it, because he was he was as real to you as anybody you knew in your life. And that's the thing about, you know, you talk about being lonely, but you weren't, because you had those people. Yeah. <laughs> you had, it's an admission I'll make in public, and on anybody who asks me, everyone on Star Trek is real. And I will say it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there is some alternate universe where yeah, I am the I, thing uh, that they I read about. I have often said that, that one of the, the really weird and wonderful thing about humanity is that we can envision a better world than we can build. Yep. And over the course of, oh, these many 
millennia. It has, it has helped us make our world better and better and better by increments. I would not want to live with 17th century dentistry. I wouldn't want to be a caveman. I wouldn't want to worry that, you know, Genghis and the hordes were coming up over the hill towards my sleepy little village. Much as people complain about the present state of things in the modern day, guys, crack a history book, look, find me somewhere you'd rather be. And I really think it's because of our ability to yearn for something better than we've got. I mean, it's almost like a happy side effect of that, that we strive towards it. But the unhappy side effect is that we can make such wonderful worlds in our imagination and then live in this <laughs> sort of sad gray one sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I hate to geek out and continue to geek out with this podcast, but when we went and saw Wonder Woman this weekend, I said to Jillian, yeah. we have to go see Wonder Woman this weekend because if we don't see Wonder Woman this weekend, they will never make another movie with a female director <laughs> where the female hero was the lead. That's why we have to see it. And it's then we went and saw, And then we went and saw it and it was good. And, so good. Yeah. And that, and that made it even sweeter, the fact that that happened. And so yeah. that's the thing is you dream of a better world and you make take action to make a better world and you're rewarded for it. You, my friend, are making great art. I get to read your art and then I get to take it and I get to, I mean, I say this all the time. Washington, D.C., I'm sure like where you came from, very small theater town. Everybody knows everybody. Very talented people, huge talent pool that we draw from for our actors, but I get to give roles to my friends and have them come in here and act their asses off and deliver some fine performances. And Jillian was talking about listening to me and Eric Messner, who plays Warlock, and I played Watson, not to give anything away to our, our regular listeners. But it was important to me to have one of my best friends play this role because the relationship between these two characters, like Jillian mentioned, is the heart of this. And as a writer, you nailed that. And that's something to be proud of. And you created something good. And I, I, uh-huh. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not being like, like dismissive by using the word good. I'm using good as in the world needs good. Does that make, that makes sense, doesn't it? I hope I'm making sense. No, it does. Thanks. And you know something, there was actually, there was a, there was a weird moment. In fact, a, a series of weird moments in, in doing this where sort of where I realized I wanted to do that, you know, that I wanted to try, that I wanted to care, that I didn't, I mean, I do want to have cheesy jokes in there. Don't get me wrong, guys, there's cheesy jokes in there, but that I didn't want to be Oh, yeah, you found some? <laughs> oh, oh, don't worry. Disc three ends with an extremely upsetting moment for a certain four-legged friend. Oh. oh. That was the other sound effect I hated writing. I won't say what it is. Oh, oh, oh that would break my heart. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't think about having to listen to that. It was bad mm-hmm. enough writing it. It's, in, it's under control. Oh. It's under control. <laughs> but it's disturbing. Go on. Sorry. Oh, Right. Oh, I'm the worst person ever. No, just, <laughs> just having those the, the moments when I realize that I, you know, I, I'm certainly not going to shy from the cheap laugh, and because frankly, that's that's half the lure of this. My, know, my engineer just my, my engineer Justin loved it. Don't worry, you have at least one <laughs> okay. huge fan. You have you one huge fan in Justin. Okay. Oh yay! Good. Yeah. No, I. I you know what's funny? Um. Oh, I'm talk about fans for a minute, but yeah, I, I wanted to to make something that could stand up to a little bit of scrutiny, hopefully. Um, Fans, I expected to get pilloried, frankly, well, for theft and for ruining everybody's homes and 
generally speaking, the geeks and also the Holmes fans have been really kind, really, really receptive. I will bitch about, you know, what I really more what I thought the public reaction would be as compared to what it's actually been. So people have been taking it real easy on me. Well, we're starting to get so saturated with homes in a way. You know, there's so much homes out there and it's such a big part of popular culture again. But what you've done is something really and truly original. So I think there's something very refreshing in that you've taken a very different take on the story. And that speaks to your creativity and people being interested. And I think that the hunger right. for it is there. You know, it's funny. I mean, in a sense, yeah. But there, there's also, like, if you want to find one where Holmes is an idiot and Watson's smart without a clue. You know, if, if you want to find one, BBC Sherlock really embraces the comedy of the whole idea. Oh, sure. Um, have been, you know, there, I'm trying to bring one to mind, it's, but it's kind of hard. There have been other ones where, you know, like magic is definitely a part of the world. Arthur Conan Doyle really flirted with it in a lot of the stories, Sussex mm. Empire, the Baskervilles. Um, James Lovegrove just did a Cthulhu version. I mean, and of course, Neil Gaiman, studying Emerald. Yes, I am Warlock Holmes. How may I be of service? It is a matter of some delicacy. Trevelyan then held his silence until Mrs. Hudson realized that he was waiting for her to leave. I'll just be on my way then. Lovely to meet such a distinguished gentleman such as yourself. Before leaving, I saw her fire a hateful sneer at Holmes and me. Ah, that's better. Now, tell me all... Well, I am the founder of Trevelyan's Aerial Ballet. And a dancer. I perceived it at once. Trapeze, I think you'll find. Observe his calloused hands, muscular upper body, and the club foot, which would surely preclude a career as a dancer. Oh, damn. I saw from Trevelyan's glance that I had wounded him somewhat. It is uh, just as your uh, uh, colleague says. I, I'm sorry, y- you must be... Dr. John Watson at your service. Oh, well, I'm very pleased to meet you. Very glad to find you here indeed. I did not like his inference. I had observed the marks of, shall we say, a gentleman's gentleman about Mr. Trevelyan. I suppose he assumed himself to be in like company and thought my relationship with Holmes was a romantic one. Holmes and I are merely fellow lodgers. It helps to share expenses. Even for a doctor? Well, I... Yes, for this doctor. I am not currently in practice, so... Ah, I am here to ask Mr. Holmes' advice over just such an arrangement. I think a different arrangement. Last spring, I was approached by a gentleman after one of my shows, name of Blessington. I cringed, hoping the story was not to be too lurid. He found me at Le Café Majestique taking dessert with a few of my uh, admirers, still in my costume. He walked straight up to us, declared an interest in trapeze, and offered to pay for the entire table if he might be allowed to join. Well, we were delighted and admitted him at once. Yet he proved to be so crude, I found myself amazed that a mind like that could have any interest in the arts at all. As the evening wore on and people began to excuse themselves, it became clear that he was waiting to be the last man at the table with me. When he had me alone, he made a very strange proposition. I shifted uneasily in my chair, which drew a look of annoyance from Trevelyan. 
Holmes was yet to give any indication that he understood the situation our guest was describing. Blessington told me he wished to become a patron of the arts, but knew nobody in London's creative circles. That very night, point blank, he offered to support me. <laughs> he promised me room, board, spending money, and financial support for my trapeze show. All I had to do was come live with him and offer a share of my profits. I say, do you make a lot of money at trapeze? <laughs> no, I don't. Nobody does. I imagine that did not concern Mr. Blessington. It did not. I chided him for his forwardness, but told him I might be interested. He offered to show me the place that very night, and I will confess I agreed. Imagine my surprise when he had me installed in a separate room from his own. Why should that surprise you? Trevelyan gave Holmes a sly look. Well, Holmes, Mr. Trevelyan enjoys the company of other men. As do I. No, I mean, instead of women. Well, that is understandable. Much as I would like to say I am beloved of the ladies, I find I never know quite what to say to them. So I suppose I must also state that I find myself more comfortable in the company of men. <sighs> you misunderstand. Mr. Tavarian is a confirmed bachelor. Well... If anybody asked you or me to confirm our marital status, would we not have to proclaim ourselves bachelors also? Holmes, when a gentleman agrees to move into another gentleman's house and allows that man to pay his way through life... Just as you and I do. No, Holmes, this is a different arrangement entirely. It sounds exactly the same! Finally, Trevelyan nodded to me that he would take over. He leaned in close to Holmes. Oh, yes, that is different. I have heard of such things, of course, but Mr. Blessington was not offering such an arrangement. Of everything we've been talking about, Gabe, all these versions of, you know, Holmes and Watson and those stories and, you know, those iconic characters... All the films, all the TV, all the comics, all the books, everything out there. Do you have a favorite version of Holmes besides your own or one that just speaks to speaks to your soul in deep and wonderful ways? You know, in a weird way, most of them do, you know. And, mm. and what's funny, I, I wasn't a huge, huge Holmes fan when I started this. Honest to God, I had read Study in Brimstone and... Um, Speckle Band mm -hmm. when I started doing this. That's it. And and in fact, so long ago that I had to reread them again because I'd just forgotten everything. You know, the day that they, that they bought me, I'm on the phone with Titan, and, who's British, by the way, mm. so I stole their culture and sold it back and <laughs> special special brand of nervousness that that engenders, right? right. Um, and they're on the phone with me saying, yeah, you know, we'd like three books, but we want an option on four. And um, well, you know, if this goes right, you, you know what you do with the whole canon, right? To to give it one big overarching story and me saying, yeah, yeah, sure. Of course. I hope it comes to that and hanging off the phone and just screaming like, honey, we got to go to Barnes and Noble right now. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I have some reading to do. You know, I have 58 um, more. I need to read stat. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, so, so, uh, the adaptations really got me, um, BBC Sherlock is kind of what led me into this, but at the same time, I love House, who oh, people sure. will say is based on Holmes. It absolutely is. He's based on the doctor that Holmes is based on. Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, they'll give it that little that little down. They're like, no, we're not basing it on Holmes. Um, we're basing it on the man that, you know, our, that Arthur Conan Doyle was impressed enough by to have created the character. Batman and Robin, mm-hmm. I mean, they even don't even be, you know, and you can spot them a mile away. You can mm-hmm. feel when it when it's getting Holmesy, and sure enough, someone will call Batman the greatest detective. You're the you're first. Like, oh yeah, you're the yeah, first person who's ever said that out loud to me. Batman and Robin as Holmes and Watson, and now I will never unthink it. Thank you for that. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Oh, you know what? Special gift. Check out Epic Rap Battles of History. They know. Oh. When, when, they were, when they were picking someone for Holmes to rap against, it's Batman. Ah, uh, yes. Clearly. <laughs> uh, where, I was on a rant. I forgot my rant. And I also had a question you asked that I have answered. I can't remember what it was now. <laughs> Sorry, guys. No, I actually, I remember what, what my unfinished rant was. You were talking about how I'd created something new. Uh, and I thank you for the thought, but the, uh, the little self-hatred voice in me, but also the, the planning voice say the same thing, which is, no, I'm stealing from everywhere. You know, I'm stealing from all those other Holmes works that have come before. Um, there's a section very early in book two where someone says, you know, we need to get a Pinkerton agent here. And and Watson says, oh, we can find one of those. No problem. There's got to be Pinkertons in London. The guy says, no, no, no. Not one of the mundane men who work for Pinkerton, a real agent. There are only nine. Nine writers clad in black, you know. <laughs> I don't know if you know, but the Pinkertons show up in like, or at least are mentioned in like five of the original Holmes stories. And I will probably make those nine writers very important as this series goes on. You know, it's, it's me just going, God, oh, I hope they forgive me. I hope, because I'm going to steal another one. Alan Moore went off one time on people stealing, uh, using his work and saying, why can't they do something original? And all I was thinking to myself was, a man who created an entire career out of stealing other people's work and making something else is now complaining about people taking his work and making something else. Ah, the irony. He does worship a snake god, so I'm not going to get into an argument with Alan Moore, but... To, just to wrap up, I wanted to ask, you know, we know book two, definitely on sale now. Like I said, we'll be following book one up very quickly with book two. Book three next year, there seems to be differing uh, opinions on what the title of book three is, depending on where you look online. Uh, what's the title for book three going to be? Uh, right now, working title and most likely to stick, My Grave Ritual, uh, a takeoff on The Musgrave Ritual, one of the originals. And what can I say about book three? So finally, Moriarty. Yeah, I've I've been for two books promising Moriarty's going to be a real threat who destroys the world. He starts becoming a problem for them in book three. Also, the idea that of Watson's mortality, the idea that he's just a guy, and you know they're they're dealing with monsters and gods and horrible things. The idea of he could be killed is not just ever present. It's well, it should happen any day now. And Holmes being the one who's much more upset by that really than Watson. By the end of book two, you'll probably get an idea that he's a very lonely man and it's bad for him to be alone and yet, you know, really hard for him to be otherwise. And by book three, you know, we just start to play with that, that idea. It's like, well, you know, this isn't going to last forever. Watson's going to die. What are you going to do? Book one was held down, I mean, as far as anchor, the anchor of it was uh, Studying Brimstone. Book two, I mean, because just coming from the idea that they're the full-length book books, so, and then book two is yeah. Baskerville. Mm. So book three, is is there an anchor book to that one, or is that all just the shorts? 
Yeah, there isn't. Uh, there's no novel anchor in three uh, for a couple of reasons. Mm. One is because, honestly, there's only four. There's only four Holmes novels. And I want to space them out, and I, and I know what I need the last two novels to do, and it's later in the series stuff. I'm eager for your sign of four. That's what's going on in my head. I can't wait for your sign of four. I am right now thinking that sign of four will be book four. Yeah, and, and not, to, not to reference something that we've already spoken of, it may well be called the sign of nine. <laughs> cool. <laughs> That's how big my theft is getting. And then the other reason, frankly, that I didn't use a novel in book three, uh, Titan actually wanted me to because their feelings like, you know, you know, we, it's doing all right. It's doing well. We, and we think maybe this is a big part of its success. And I had to argue. I'm like, okay, but I want to prepare for this thing to succeed all the way, which is me doing almost 60 stories and making one overarching demon apocalypse story out of entire original Holmes canon. And if I do that, I'm going to need novels later on. And then the other thing is, well, guys, if you think this is being successful, then it's got to have its own fan. It's got to be able to stand on its own. And, and I frankly have to be able to make a good story out of these short stories in that sort of thank you, Joss Whedon, for teaching us how to do episodic advancement, you know, sort of way. So yeah, book three is very much that. And the other problem is that as my own world gets bigger and more complex with more history in it, the stories get a little bit farther from the original and also bigger than the original. <laughs> So some of these short stories are not so short. Back to graphic audio, just to ask, um, did you know anything about graphic audio or had you ever even considered that these stories might become audiobooks is the first part of my question. And the second part is, is it weird to or challenging in any way to turn over one of your books, you know, one of your babies in a way to other people to adapt and record and sort of do their own, you know, uh, adaptations of Oh, well, so here's, I, I mean, I'll be honest. I hadn't heard of you guys. I, I hadn't heard of you until my agent, Sam, called me up and said that he'd, he'd sold my book to you. And I sort of had to go, wait, 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 what? They do what? <laughs> you know, it's like, that's, that's sort of all I wanted. Surprise! And, and then the funny thing is that we'd already sold audio rights. I'm like, Sam, Sam, we can't, we can't, you know, like, it's, this would be so good. Why didn't you tell me about this before? And he's like, no, no, this counts as an abridgment. We can, (laughs) and just me sort of uh, celebrating, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and you know, as to how it feels, it is funny because I was an actor first. I know when I write dialogue, I know how I would say it and that's how I try to write it. And it's been very strange sending these things off and, you know, watching, watching when people get them wrong or when people get them right, or when people find a little something there that I hadn't thought and me just going like, that is better. You know, it's like, turns out actors are good and I should trust them. And it's, and it's also fair because I was on the other side of these things. I was the guy who took, well, I was going to say who used to take dead men's words and reinterpret them. But frankly, that's still what I'm doing writing this. You know, I'm the one who used to have a script and try to bring it to life on stage. And it's very weird for me to suddenly be the author who's like, well, it's out of my hands. All I can do is sit here and see what you do with it. But it's, it's really fun. Well, we appreciate you. We're going to wrap things up. This was Scott McCormick and... Jillian Levine-Sisson. With G.S. Denning. So thank you for being with us, Gabe. Oh, thank you. I can't wait to hear it. You guys are wonderful. Thanks, Ella Geeks. I love you. <laughs> we love you, too. Thank you so much. Thanks.
We would like to thank G.S. Denning for taking the time to talk to us. The first book of the Warlock Holmes series, A Study in Brimstone, is now available. The second book, The Hellhound at the Baskervilles, will be released later this fall. For more information on how to purchase our graphic audio titles, please call us at 1-800-670-5220 or visit us on the web at www.graphicaudio.net and www.graphicaudiointernational.net where you can purchase our titles in audio CD format or in one of our download formats, MP3, M4B, and FLAC. And you can listen to your downloads anytime, anywhere with our free Graphic Audio Access app, available for Apple and Android devices. Make sure you sign up for our e-newsletter, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter. Twitter.